0: Hi, it's Sean Collins, and this is the Hear Me Now podcast. On today's program, stories about sickle cell disease. It's an inherited disorder of the blood protein hemoglobin. It causes a number of health problems for people with the disease and some complications for people who carry the genetic trait for the disease. Most people with sickle cell are black or African, but not everyone. And the hallmark symptom for people with sickle cell disease is excruciating episodes of chronic pain. Titilope Fashipa was born in Nigeria and today has a family in Houston, Texas. She has lived with sickle cell disease her whole life.
1: So it usually starts with a twinge. Now I say this as if it can, you know, it's like a warning sign, but the warning itself is unpredictable. And it's usually um, after something great has happened, um, you've had a good day, it just seems to come out of the blue. But when I feel that twinge, I know it's going to be a rough night. I first try to see if I can stop it from turning into a crisis. That's what my first go-to is. Um, So I'll take some medicine and pray, please don't turn into a crisis. Um, But the twinge can go either way. And when it wants to escalate to the full-blown crisis, it's just horrible. So I think a lot of people use terms like excruciating to describe the pain. And that is, I'm certainly in that camp as well. It is the worst pain I've ever felt in my life. and the fact that in some ways I'm used to it, it doesn't make it easier. Um, so when I get that twinge and I, and I get the, the sense that it is going to escalate into a crisis, um, I just, it's almost like you ready yourself for battle. I try to get all the things together and hunker down until it can pass. I try not to cry too much because that can actually make the pain worse. I have my heating pad. I have my pain medicine. I have some fluids. And I'm usually by this time, I've already made it to my bed to try to get my body as warm as possible. The area that has the most severe pain, that's where I put the heating pad. And then I pray. Um, Things that I use to distract myself uh, aside from prayer, sometimes music or singing, Um, if I have a loved one nearby. I ask them to, you know, pray over me, rub that body part as well, until I'm able to get, get to sleep. So the the time between the pain and me falling asleep, that's the worst part. Eventually, when I fall asleep, my prayer is that when I wake up, the pain is gone. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes it's not. So I don't know. I, that's the best way I describe it. Um, for me. I'm not able to walk or move with this type of pain. Um, I need assistance. And this is why I've taught myself to keep my emergency medicines and my heating pad really close to my bed because um, yeah, I've had a situations where I had to roll myself, or you know, if I didn't have anybody with me, I had to roll myself to get uh, some of the things I needed. So I, I learned pretty quickly that if I don't have family around, like, you know, when I started living independently, I need to have like my emergency pack right next to me because or near my bed. So um, when I need it, it's there. My pain crises tend to happen at night, um, in the middle of the night. That's kind of the most, you know, annoying part of it, like the suck it to you. Again, you might have a wonderful day without any warning twis- twinges, but then, yeah, usually mine happen in the middle of the night. And so, it ends up being a long night and a rough morning, but like I said, I I just wait until I can fall asleep and pray for the relief.
0: That's Titilope Fashipa describing her experience as someone living with sickle cell disease. Sickle cell is the focus of much of her life. You see, she not only has sickle cell, she's one of the country's leading researchers into the disorder. Tita Lope Fashipa is the co-director of the Sickle Cell and Thalassemia program at Texas Children's Cancer and Hematology Center in Houston, and assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the Baylor College of Medicine. I'm pleased to say that she's our guest today and our guide to understanding sickle cell. Dr. Fashipa, welcome. I'm so glad that you're spending time with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Sean. I'm happy to be here today, and I want to thank you for spotlighting sickle cell. It's very important, and I
0: appreciate that. Well, we're so grateful for you being with us. You know, we asked you to begin by telling us something about your experience with the disease, and I want to let the audience know that we've collected stories from a couple of people with sickle cell, and we'll be hearing from them throughout the program. Dr. Fashipa, you talked about what a crisis is like for you, and I have to tell you, it's harrowing to hear you describe excruciating pain. You you said that most often it happens in the evening or at night. I'm curious what happens if you're at work at the hospital hmm. and you experience a crisis.
1: Yeah, it has happened before. Thankfully, not often. Um What I've noticed is mine tend to happen in the middle of the night. Um, It's almost like your whole day has gone and then the body's like, okay, I'm done. (laughs) But when it happens at work, uh, I've told myself that when I was in school um, or when I was in situations where people don't depend on me, um, you could, it doesn't really matter my health. I only have to worry about myself. But because of where I work and and what I do, and most people, no matter what job they have, they're accountable to other people. I feel it's important that if I'm not able to work, I should let someone know and stop working. So for me, um, it's happened a few times where I was at work. I started getting those twinges and I realized that, oh, the Advil is not cutting it. I need to go home or I need to stop working. So. Um, at my job, I call the person in charge of our schedules, um, who's also a, another doctor who works with me, and she's actually a close friend of mine, and I let her know. and then she's able to help me go through the process of and it's just like calling in sick at any job. Yeah. Um, I don't really tell a lot of people the details of stuff. and thankfully, um, with most jobs, you know, when you're calling in sick, you're calling in sick. So, Um, depending on how bad I feel, I either wait uh, until I'm stable, but most times in those situations, I've had to call somebody to pick me up because I wouldn't be able to drive myself or I get a ride from somebody. Um, but
0: yeah. And what's the timeline typically from the first time you feel one of those, uh, twinges to when the episode Mm -hmm. is over? Like how long a period are you talking about?
1: You know, it's fascinating because I think pe- some people describe it differently. Mine are, I measure in hours. So the twinge, it usually means it's 30 minutes to an hour away from the escalation. Uh-huh. You'll hear some people reference days. Days happens with me, but mine, I tend to measure it in hours and in in that chunk of time. Um For my pain crises, as bad as they are when they're gone, um, I usually only need another day of rest or so before I can at least gingerly (laughs) start back to work. Um, I am getting older, so I do wonder Hmm. if some of that affects the way I bounce back. Um, But I've been very careful that if I still feel any hints of twinges, if you will, (laughs) sorry for using such a strange term, but if I still feel hints of that, I'm careful about what I do the next day or what I'm going to do that day.
0: Dr. but we're talking with the use of a video conferencing mm-hmm. software and I'm watching you describe these episodes of pain and how you manage them. And, and what is so apparent to me is living with this over the course of your life, you have become aware of your body. In a way that most people are not. Are you are you cognizant of that? Um,
1: I think so. I don't know if i I don't know other people's experiences, but I do. I do have a, a maybe a hyper awareness. I I try not to be so anxious about everything going on in my body, but um, I always have this sense of check in with every part, if you will. So uh, most people, their, their trouble spots are usually the back and legs, you know, parts of the body that do a lot of work for people. So sometimes arms as well. So if I, I'm always almost like surveying, uh, how's my back? How, how are my legs? Okay, we're good. We're good. Um, did I climb too many steps? Did I do this too many? You know, we're good. We're good. So yeah, I guess I'm surveying my body at times, maybe more than a regular person, Um, I try not to push it to the level of anxiety where I'm just like, oh, why did my finger do that or what? But it's just more, um, yeah, maybe check-ins like keeping track of, okay, am I putting myself at risk? Uh, I will say the having a pain crisis is excruciating, but you're also scared of it, right? right? You don't want it to happen. And so I'm trying to make sure I'm living my life. I don't want to live in fear of having pain, but yet, I am afraid of having pain. So I'm trying to also make sure I'm listening for the twinges, if you will, and like stop them in their tracks as much as possible. Um, I mentioned my age and I think the more I've aged, the more likely I am to be scared that um, I've overdone something um, where mm. as a child, maybe I didn't think about that as much.
0: No kid ever thinks about that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we, just have that. we just want to be ourselves. <laughs>
0: That checking in with your body is a meditative mm-hmm. technique. I mean, that, that some people who are, rather than counting breaths or being aware of their breath, they'll do this sort of body scan where, where they just check in with different parts of their body. Uh, and it strikes me that you're doing that sort of as a matter of self preservation and, and wellness, which is interesting. It produces an awareness of uh, what's going on with yourself in a way that mm-hmm. a lot of people can be sort of mindless of and you're being mindful of.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting you said that I feel like in the past few years I've learned new words like mindfulness and I didn't know what it I didn't know that those were things I was already doing even as as a young person I mentioned distraction, I mentioned um prayer and music. These are different ways people um try to, so some people might use words like distraction, but I think it's ways to cope with a difficult situation. And we know that our minds are very powerful. And so I I think um, somehow you learn that coping through something, you need some tools. Um, I, I have found that there are now new studies looking at sickle cell specifically and things like mindfulness huh. because of what you just said. And also even there's a program that exists that t- to teach people with sickle cell how to breathe and, and work through their pain in a way that they have more strength and hopefully a little bit more control. This is an area that I'm actually very interested in for our, our patients. I want them to have as many tools as possible to provide comfort and relief. And I knew from a long time ago, medicine is, is not always the most important thing in the toolbox. It is a component of the toolbox, but you need much more if you're gonna deal with pain, if you're gonna deal with suffering.
0: My guest today is Tita Fashipa, who is co-director of the Sickle Cell and Thalassemia Program at Texas Children's Hospital. We've recorded a number of stories from people with sickle cell, Uh, for today's program, here's an excerpt from one of them. Andre Marcel Harris talks with his sister, Alexis Harris, about the importance of knowing your trait status.
2: There's so much to talk about when it comes to sickle cell and my journey. I have lived with it my entire life. I actually was diagnosed before I was born, while I was still in my mom's womb, and so my parents found out that way it was one of those things where i believe our dad knew that he had sickle cell trait but my mother didn't know she had sickle cell trait and so now they're faced with having a child that has sickle cell disease and and that really is another reason that motivates me to be someone who is not only an advocate for sickle cell but has really dedicated my life to learning about sickle cell disease um, I think everyone should have the access to that knowledge about their sickle cell trait status so that they can make an informed decision about um, their their future offspring.
3: I have seen sickle cell through you know your lens I've you know grown up with you um, but as far as just outside influence with sickle cell um, I can't say that we talked much about sickle cell until I got to college and that they do the sickle cell trait testing for student athletes that was really my first experience aside from my experience with you um hearing really about sickle cell so by that time you know you're 18 19 years old going into college like that's kind of late to be learning about sickle cell you know yeah. um, especially if you are a carrier of the trait or if you were you know possibly diagnosed with it um it shouldn't take Up until, you know, you're well into your teenage years, well into your transitioning adult years um, to to know about it.
2: Yeah, that's that's a good point, Alexis, because we just need public awareness to be um, heightened at a base. Um, And there are so many people um, that may have heard of sickle cell disease, but don't know much about it. I have been fighting um, and I think that it is a great um, point of advocacy to educate people um, in K through 12 about sickle cell disease um, and encouraging children to know their sickle cell trait status. Um, You don't, like you said, you don't wait because let's be honest, people still have children at 14, 15, 16, unfortunately, you know, however you want to you know, frame, frame that. Um, but you can't wait till they're 18 to tell them that, you know, about their trait status because people are having children and, and also sickle cell trait, it is benign, but it's not as benign as people think. There are certain risks that you should be aware of if you have trait. And so I think you owe it to your child. Um, if they have trait, um, First of all, to know if they have trait and then also to let them know, to be aware that there are a lot of people with sickle cell trait who experience sickle cell crises, just like people with sickle cell disease. There are people with sickle cell trait who end up being diagnosed with a rare cancer called re- renal medullary carcinoma. And then there's also things called exertional sickling. There's a lot of people who are, in, as you mentioned, in athletics who are in basketball, football, and other sports who just die, drop dead um, during a conditioning training or during a game because they have sickle cell trait. And so not to sound uh, you know morbid, but people should know um, their sickle cell trait status so that they can understand some of these uh, risk factors know the signs and so if something happens or goes awry that they're aware
0: that's andre marcel harris talking with his sister alexis or his baby sister as he calls her you'll find their entire conversation on our website hearmenowpodcast.org my guest today is dr titi lope Fashipa, co-director of the sickle cell and thalassemia program at texas children's hospital Dr. Faschapal, let's talk about the disease and what we know about it. Um, my understanding is that it's a disease of hemoglobin, the protein in our blood that transports oxygen. Tell us what is going on in people with sickle cell.
1: It, and For a scientist or, and a hematologist, it's actually a very fascinating disease. Um, so you're correct. It's a disorder of hemoglobin. And I'm actually impressed that you went straight to hemoglobin, Um Most people start with the fact that it's a red blood cell disorder, but the the machinery inside our red blood cells that allow allow them to carry oxygen is hemoglobin. And so there's millions and millions of hemoglobin inside a red blood cell, um, and the work is to carry oxygen to all the parts of the body. With sickle cell disease, the mutation in hemoglobin causes the hemoglobin to become <laughs> very messed up. It still carries oxygen. But when it lets go of oxygen, it basically becomes like a connect stick. It just wants to stick to other hemoglobin molecules. And that's not good for the red blood cell because the red blood cell is made to be flexible and it wants all of the hemoglobin to be to move in a nice flexible flexible rhythm. But with sickle cell instead of the flexible rhythm you end up with these rigid rods of hemoglobin strands and that changes the shape of the red blood cell into that classic c-shape crescent shape banana shape and in the olden days the word sickle which was a farming instrument and that's how sickle cell got its name so once that happens the red blood cell um two things. It becomes more fragile and easier to break up open and that that means the red blood cells don't live as long as a person mm-hmm. without sickle cell disease. To give you context, most people's red blood cells last for 30 days from the birth of the red blood cell to when its um lifespan is done. But for an individual with sickle cell, that can be as long as just 2 weeks. So they're always struggling with the loss of red blood cells. This is why they have anemia, which is low red blood cell numbers. The other component of that odd shape is that instead of squeezing through tiny blood vessels easily, those odd shapes end up getting stuck in those areas where they're not supposed to be stuck. Now, we used to just think of it as a traffic jam of sickle cells. Now we realize that it involves a whole bunch of other cells too, including cells that cause inflammation. That inflammation and that blockage of blood flow is what causes that pain crisis and also what causes the organ damage that you see with sickle cell disease. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: The organ damage with sickle cell disease, if you think anywhere blood goes, uh, you can have a sickle cell problem, but common ones that you may have heard about are stroke, which would be very devastating, even in children. Sickle cell is actually the most common cause of stroke in children. Um, You can have eye problems, you can end up having uh, kidney problems, bone issues, So not everybody gets everything, but sickle cell could cause a problem in any part of the body for individuals. And so um, it's not just about the pain, it's also about a life of organ damage. And unfortunately that's then tied to um, premature mortality. So the lifespan, the average lifespan of individuals with sickle cell disease are decades lower than the general population. And it's because of those two reasons. Of the cells living not living long enough, and the cells also uh, causing that organ damage
0: so at at some level it's sounds like it's a mechanical problem that the red blood cell, when it's rounded uh slips past one another more easily than when it's crescent moon shaped mm-hmm. and it and it can s- stick to one another and to other structures in
1: exactly. It's definitely mechan- that's an excellent way to think of it. In fact, there's something called adhesion molecules. So adhesion, of course, means to stick to something, um, like adhesive tape, for instance. So actually, we call that process that stickiness adhesion, and there's molecules that actually control that. We've noticed that sickle cells have more of those molecules, and they tend to stick more to places that they shouldn't be sticking to. And they also stick to other cells that cause that inflammation.
0: So is that an avenue of research? Like how to decrease the adhesion?
1: Indeed, it is. Um, so that is one, I, I see sickle cell as a, a disease that probably needs multiple things to, to get it getting back on track. Um, but adhesion is one of the hot topics. Um, and in fact, there's a current drug that is targeting that that's FDA approved. Um, but you'll notice that there's other drugs targeting other things as well.
0: Let's talk about some of that research that are some of those advances that have come out recently. And as uh, 2022 was ending, my producer and I were looking at a list of uh, news stories that were saying, you know, this new advance in sickle cell, this new advance in sickle cell. And it made us realize, oh, there's, there's movement here. We need to get someone into. Yeah. <laughs> help us think through it. And hey, guess what? You're that person. Um,
1: well, you know, the funny, I hope, let, let's start it this way. I'm going to start with the bad news. <laughs> so we've known about sickle cell for many years. And for America, the first patient with sickle cell was noted in 1910. But I would say it took until maybe the 1950s, 1960s, that it became a, a area of study for scientists and, and doctors. But even with all of that time, we did not have a lot to offer for sickle cells. So it's a sad story, um, actually. So it wasn't until 1998, if you can imagine, that the first drug for sickle cell was approved. And this is, again, after decades of knowing about it and understanding things like that, what we just talked about, um, the mechanisms, the, all of that. So 1998, the drug that was approved is, was called hydroxyurea. Now, hydroxyurea, is a drug that helps you make healthier hemoglobin. Um, You may have heard this hemoglobin called fetal hemoglobin. Fetal hemoglobin is hemoglobin that babies make when um, they're inside uh, during pregnancy because they don't use their lungs yet. So fetal hemoglobin helps them get oxygen from their mom's hemoglobin. Now, as soon as you're born, you don't make fetal hemoglobin anymore, but hydroxyurea has the ability to help you make that fetal hemoglobin again, Hmm. and that helps to reduce the drama that the sickle hemoglobin causes. So that's one piece. Hydroxyurea also helps tone down some of that inflammation, those cells that cause the drama. And so in general, it makes your cells healthier, live longer, and Studies have now shown since 1998 and onward that it basically does a lot of good for sickle cell, but it was just still one drug. So time passed again. And like I said, here's the bad news of it. You would think that with a chronic disease, you would have more than one drug option. Sickle cell is a unique chronic disease in that it only had one drug option for years. So the next um, season of approved drugs for sickle cell were not until 2017. And 2019. So that's almost what 20 years <laughs> since. Um, and that would be unheard of for other chronic diseases. Let me name a few, like diabetes or high blood pressure, hypertension, um, asthma. Now, if you look at those chronic illnesses, they have a whole bunch of drugs. And let me say, yes, they're more common than sickle cell, but even when you look at rare diseases like cystic fibrosis or hemophilia, they also have way more drugs than sickle cell. So it, it's, it's something that we realized is a problem. One of the things that did help sickle cell and other rare diseases was something called the Orphan Drug Act, and that allowed um, companies to uh, fast track products for rare dis- disorders. So that 2017 and 2019 drugs I'm about to talk about, they benefited from that Orphan Drug Act to help get more drugs for sickle cell. So in 2017, the next drug approved for sickle cell was one called L-glutamine. Now you might recognize that name because it's an amino acid we make in our bodies, or you might recognize it from your general nutrition store. You're like, oh, isn't that something exercise people use for the gym? Um, Well, the researchers behind this product realized that L-glutamine helps with the oxidative stress or the bad oxygen that happens in our body sometimes and causes damage. And that seems to help people with sickle cell. So endari or L-glutamine is one of the drugs. And then in 2019 we had two more added. One of them targets adhesion. So one is called crizanluzumab. That's its its scientific name, but you might hear the trade name adakveo, just slightly easier to pronounce. Um, that drug targets one of the sticky molecules. It's called P-selectin, and that drug. Keeps um, basically is an antibody that blocks that P-selectin, and you you hopefully keep it from sticking. So that means the sickle cells don't stick as much. And then that third new drug um, that was also approved in 2019, its name is voxelotor, and it also goes by the trade name Oxbryta. This one decided to target sickle cell in a different way. It actually allows the hemoglobin molecules to hold on to oxygen better and that allows the cell to not break up as much and to be healthier as well. So it was exciting that we now had this new interest and as you said, these innovative approaches to figuring out how to target sickle cell in multiple ways. And I'm happy to say that there's more companies invested in sickle cell now. Some of them are using um, the same approaches, meaning they're trying to figure out how do we target the disease and prevent the organ damage. Some of them are going a step further and they're looking at how do we cure the disease and what is, you know, what is the best way to do that? So you may have read about gene therapy for sickle cell disease. So before I uh, tell you a little bit about gene therapy, I need to uh, give you some background about transplant. So I mentioned that there's four drugs for sickle cell, but I did not tell you that there's a fifth way to treat sickle cell and that's through a matched um, related donor transplant. And so when people think of a transplant, I think most of us are accustomed to hearing about kidney transplants or heart transplants, but you can also transplant the bone marrow because the bone marrow is the factory that makes all of our blood cells. Now in the 1980s, there was a young girl with sickle cell who happened to get leukemia. Now transplant is a very common, treatment plan for some types of leukemia and so she got a transplant for her leukemia and the doctors were like to their amazement the sickle cell went away too so that's when we realized okay you can give people with sickle cell disease a bone marrow transplant and that can cure the disease stop you from making sickle cells and you'll make healthy red blood cells so in the 90s we had a lot more studies about that and now it's very common like i send um, children some of my the patients that we take care of They get transplanted. The limitations of transplant though are you have to have a match and that's tricky. Not everybody has a match in their family. There are exploring other ways to do transplants without a perfect match, but I will say that those are versions of clinical trials too. Hmm. So then gene therapy came up because the, the idea was, okay, so most people with sickle cell don't have a match and we know that transplant is a good cure. Is there a way that you can be a match for yourself? or can you do a self or auto transplant? Is that possible? And the answer is yes, it is possible, but you have to do something first. You have to fix the genetic problem that's giving you the sickle cell issue. And so that's where the word gene therapy comes in. Mm -hmm. You would first take the person's cells and you take it to the lab and you do one of the various methods of gene therapy you grow enough of those new cells, and then you put it back in the person's body. And it basically is the same way of transplant. You would do almost very similar steps. The new step is that you fix the cells. Now, the good news is because it's your own cells, you don't have to worry about rejection or, or not recognizing those cells. And that's the problem with transplant now, you can only get a person that matches you, Um, but you know you match yourself. And so that's kind of the beauty of gene therapy. It is a auto transplant, a transplant using your own cells. Um, So that is the brief uh, kind of introduction. How do you fix the cells? Like what are the actual types of gene therapy? I will tell you three main types. Um, One, is what if you give your body a new hemoglobin that's healthy? And basically you turn yourself into a person that still makes your sickle cell, but you make a healthier hemoglobin that takes over and you're likely to uh, be a healthy person and be cured. This is the same way people with sickle cell trait, you know, are seen. People with sickle cell trait only have one copy of the abnormal gene and they tend to live long, healthy lives. And so gene addition or adding in a good, healthy hemoglobin is one strategy. The second strategy is how do you turn on that fetal hemoglobin, but turn it up to the max? So we already talked about how fetal hemoglobin was already the best hemoglobin ever. Like it helps babies get oxygen from their mom. And with hydroxyurea, it's able to turn on enough to make a lot of people feel healthier. But the hydroxyurea effect is not enough to cure you, it's just enough to help the disease not be as bad. So the gene therapy involving fetal hemoglobin is to make that, as I said, to the max, like make sure you're making so much fetal hemoglobin, it always wins over the S. And so several people are looking at that. You might have heard words like CRISPR technology or short earpin RNA. Those are ways to, um, basically, you're trying to turn off the switch that was keeping you from making the fetal hemoglobin, and you get rid of that switch. And so then you turn it on, and you basically are able to make fetal hemoglobin. Does that make sense? It's a lot of steps.
0: (laughs) No, it, it does make sense, but it, it, that CRISPR technique is sort of an editing technique, isn't it? You're editing the, the genetic code.
1: Exactly. It is an editing technique. So the gene addition ones, you're adding a gene. You're, you're, you're technically editing it, but not in a way where you've um, erased something. You're just adding something. But with a CRISPR technique or with the short hairpin RNA technique, you're basically telling the code, hey, stop doing this. So that something else can work and that something else is fetal hemoglobin.
0: That's fascinating.
1: It's very fascinating. And you know it it's, th- this is why hemoglobin itself is very, like I love, from my scientist side, I geek out on hemoglobin all the time, <laughs> um, because we actually have so many different types of hemoglobin. And if I could just have the time to tell you, I would, I would bore you to tears, I think. But one of those fascinating things is that relationship between the fetal hemoglobin and your adult hemoglobin. The reason why we knew that this is a powerful technique is that babies with sickle cell aren't hmm. sick most of the time. They don't get sick until they make enough adult hemoglobin wow. to cause problems. So in the early phase, like the first few months of life, most babies, are they look completely healthy and they don't have any sickle cell complications and that's because they have so much fetal hemoglobin. And the moment the fetal hemoglobin goes down, you start seeing the drama with sickle cell. It doesn't necessarily mean the baby's always in the hospital, but you start seeing the abnormality in the cells and you realize that, well, here's their adult sickle cell, their adult hemoglobin is definitely sickle cell hemoglobin. And so based on that baby experience and on people who naturally make a lot of fetal hemoglobin because they happen to have a good mutation, those people and the babies taught us that fetal hemoglobin is a remarkable way to help cure sickle cell if you can figure out how to turn it back on. And so yes, gene editing is that way. The last step or the last way, excuse me, um, is almost like trying to do both. What if you got rid, all of the ways I told you, they actually keep your own sickle um, gene still present. So you either add a healthy gene or you turn on the ability to make fetal hemoglobin, which is an excellent hemoglobin. Well, the third way is what they call gene correction. It also involves editing. And these people want to take away the hemoglobin S, the sickle hemoglobin, and give you a healthy hemoglobin. So they're kind of trying to do two steps in one, or they're taking away your S and making sure you have fetal hemoglobin. So um, I will say that all three of them are being explored in clinical trials right now. And, and being studied in humans. And so the future is exciting. We're gonna learn a lot. We've already, as you read from these articles, there's a lot of um, success in the clinical trials. There have been a few situations that have caused us to, to pause and make sure that, okay, are we making sure we evaluate all the risks? But in general, most of the people that have undergone a gene therapy trial are doing well. And those are the stories that you continue to hear. And then we're still learning from those that did not do well to understand. We want to make sure we, have, um, we understand all the risk for somebody undergoing gene therapy so that they can be healthy before, uh, healthy after and not have any other new problems afterwards.
0: I'm talking with Titilope Faschipa today. Dr. Fashipa co-directs the Sickle Cell and Thalassemia Program at Texas Children's Hospital. Here's another one of the stories that we've recorded from people with sickle cell for today's program. My colleague, Scott Acord, spoke on the phone with Sijama Branch, and they talked a bit about how Sijama faces the suffering that comes with living with a disease.
4: It's always been a part of my life. And growing up, I had pain and I had the normal symptoms that go with sickle cell. My brother really had a harder time. He um, spent more time in the hospital than I did. And my younger brother actually passed away at six months old from a sickle cell crisis. Back then in 1964, they still really didn't know about sickle cell, how to treat it and, and what to do. And so unfortunately, he passed away at six months. So everyone was still trying to figure out, how do you take care of this disease?
0: Yeah. Can you just describe what a crisis is for you?
4: Okay. For me, my crisis is really just severe pain. It could happen in your abdomen, your back, your hips. And for me, mostly it's like in my joints where it just feels like kind of um, knife sticks or or, or pinpricks and then throbbing pain. And there's nothing you can do to really settle it. And so um, as a kid, I would just lie very still. I would lay down and I would find a position that I could get comfortable enough in where the pain would not be quite as great. And I would try to stay in that position because the minute I would move, it would start all over again with the throbbing and the pain I would have to try to settle it again. And that's what lands my brother in the hospital a lot. But I never had it to where I went to the hospital. I would manage it at home. You just kind of take in fluids. You um, try to lay still. You try to keep rested until it subsides. It can last from a day or weeks. And um, it's, it's just it's funny. And it could occur at any time. I remember when I was in high school and my biology teacher told us, now we're getting ready to go into genetics. So I don't want anyone to to miss class because it's very important that you're here to, to get everything. And it was that very day that I went home with a sickle cell crisis and I stayed out of school for two weeks. Oh, and when I came back, my teacher was not very accommodating. I told him, I said, I was ill. I had, a doctor's note that said I have sickle cell and I and he was very um, uncaring and said, well, you missed this section and you're not going to probably pass this section, so I don't know what to do. You'll probably have to take biology again. When someone shares that they have sickle cell, just realize that they would like your support during times when they need it, but they don't want to be pitied and they don't want to be treated as being incapable mainly just be there. If it's just to sit with them, then do that. If it's to make sure that they're drinking enough fluids, then do that. Read with them or bring them some nice music to listen to. Or just be there and talk with them. Because a lot of times when you're in crisis, you really just have to lay down. You really just have to get in bed and kind of let it pass. And that's hard to do if you're just going to do it alone. And so... Family support, friend support, it, it's really needed.
0: Sajama Branch, talking with my colleague, producer Scott Acord. You can hear the rest of their conversation on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. Sajama talked about the importance of building a network of support from friends and family. Dr. Fashipa, do, do other folks in your family have the condition? Did you grow up with people who were living with sickle cell?
1: No, actually, so I am the oldest uh, of four four children. So I have three younger siblings and I'm the only one in my family um, that was born with sickle cell disease. So in my early childhood, it was very isolating. Then when I was 11, and to give you context, I was born in Nigeria, which is actually uh, the country that has the most sickle cell in the world. And then I moved to America when I was three years old. But when I was 11, we moved back to Nigeria. And that was a very life-changing experience for me because then I did meet other people with sickle cell for the first time. I met um, a cousin that was uh, my maternal cousin. I also met children I went to school with and I didn't feel alone anymore. And when I would go to the sickle cell clinic, there'd be tons of kids with sickle cell. So I, I found a belonging of sorts when I moved back to Nigeria that I did not have in my early days in America. Fast forward, when I got to college, um, and this was back in the United States, I knew two other people in my university with sickle cell, and it's almost like we just had a secret. We never, it wasn't something we would talk about all the time, but we just had this kind of secret relationship or secret like, hey, I I know what you're going through uh, kind of relationship. And so uh, there was a special love we had for each other, uh, those two individuals and I Uh, just because we had that similar experience. And it's the same one I feel when I meet anybody with sickle cell. There's this instant kindred spiritness, if you will, that we share.
0: I'm glad that you brought up a network of support. It's part of the conversation that Dr. Bria Davis had with her cousin, Heather Avant, who is an independent patient advocate. Their conversation is one that we recorded for this podcast. Let's listen to an excerpt.
5: How do you feel about having sickle cell? How do I feel? That's such a broad mm-hmm. question, and it's a good question, but it's a really broad question because I think there are a lot of answers, right? Uh, sickle cell is the, it's not a one-dimensional thing. Everything in my life is affected by sickle cell. Uh, I don't get to like take a day off uh, from having sickle cell like I would love to do. Um, uh, so I, I f- sometimes I feel empowered. Sometimes I feel weak. Um, sometimes I feel angry and sad. I think all of those emotions and that complete range of emotions is what sickle cell kind of is to me. It's 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 not just one singular thing. Um, I think it depends on what else is going on in my life and how I'm able to manage and cope with sickle cell. Um, I know uh, while having sickle cell and being pregnant, I was angry every day because I wanted to feel like the other mommies out there having babies and wanted to feel like I had some semblance of self-control. However, it was more, nothing more real then in that day and age when I was having this little life born inside of me who was literally taking everything that I had to offer. Um, And I realized that, um, sickle cell was a lot more than I had ever really given it credit for as far as just how it made me feel day to day. Um, I'm really good. And I think a lot of warriors like myself, we call ourselves warriors. We don't call ourselves sickle cell patients. Um, a lot of warriors like myself, uh, we oftentimes we get so used to being in pain, we get so used to feeling fatigued that sometimes we don't even realize that we're that way, um, until it's really bad until we have to kind of fight through. Uh, The next. Having sickle cell is complicated. I advise community, creating a community, finding community. One thing about sickle cell, one thing about us as patients is we're resilient, but there's so many of us out there and we get together for Warrior Con. It's it's a whole convention uh, circled around warriors and having fun and learning about different therapies that are out there, um, getting involved, sending your children to camps understanding that life isn't over because of a diagnosis it's just beginning um and learning how to work around that diagnosis how to work around um what are the workarounds what are the ways that we can take shortcuts what are the ways that we really want to sit down and talk to someone but knowing that they're you're not alone there are a lot of us out there going through the very through very similar things everyone has a story to tell including me i'm here telling my little my little snippet. Um, But just knowing that sickle cell isn't the end, it's just the beginning, and it's how you kind of live it that's going to make the difference.
0: That's Heather Avant talking with her cousin, Bria Davis. You can hear the rest of their conversation on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. My guest today is Dr. Tita Lope-Fashapa of the Sickle Cell and Thalassemia Program at Texas Children's Hospital. Dr. Fashipa, so much of our conversation today has been hopeful. I sort of hate to end on this question, but I don't want our conversation to end without us talking a little bit about the social barriers that exist for people with sickle cell seeking treatment. The story that you hear time and time again is of someone in crisis going to the emergency department and being suspected of drug seeking because they say they're in pain and because they're black.
1: So, Sean, I, I think it's a perfect question to end on because it's our call to action question, right? What, how do we move forward with sickle cell? Well, we, I mentioned addressing the elephants. This is one of the biggest elephants <laughs> is we have to address the fact that although sickle cell disease is a hemoglobin disease, a red blood cell disorder, uh, unfortunately, because of our, our society, it's also a disorder of our society. It's um, impacted by systemic racism. It's impacted by historical injustices. Um, And it impacts mostly a population of people from disenfranchised um, situations and circumstances. Not everybody with sickle cell is black, but the majority of them are, or they're Hispanic. Um, but you can see anybody in the world with sickle cell. And in fact, all of them experience some version of stigma, even a Caucasians with sickle cell. But because of that, that large piece of the historical and um, systemic injustices that are reflective of, of the Black population, it's hand in hand with the sickle cell experience. I've I've said that for me, sickle cell is the medical representation of the black experience in America. It's more nuanced Hmm. than that, of course, but it, it, when it, it was like a light bulb, I was in medical school and I met my first patient with sickle cell disease where, you know, they were taking care of her. And when I saw how she was being treated, that's when I realized that, oh, sickle cell is ugly in America. People don't like it. And doctors, told me. So they're like, oh yeah, you don't want to take care of sickle cell patients. They're drug seekers. Oh my gosh, it's horrible. So I'm like, why would a doctor ever say something like that? Or why would people not believe an individual with sickle cell? That was my first time seeing the ugly side. And that's when I realized that curing sickle cell is important, but we have a social issue with sickle cell. We have a compassion problem with sickle cell. We need to tell a different story. And that also starts by addressing those elephants. And so to your point, that is a very true story for many individuals, including myself, where we've gone into the emergency department. We're going to seek care there. And I mentioned in the beginning, how most times I pray that I don't need to go to the hospital because what I'm worried about is being mistreated. And it doesn't matter that I'm a doctor, I, I could go on and on. And I don't want people to give me good care because I'm a doctor, right? (laughs) You want good care just because you're a human and you're in pain and you need help. I also struggle because I know a lot of young adults that have died prematurely with sickle cell. And I keep on wondering could their deaths been prevented? You know, I mentioned the lifespan Mm -hmm. of individuals with sickle cell are decades lower, but not teenage level. It's usually, you know, two decades lower. So when a teenager or young adult dies with sickle cell, I think that's a problem. And when their families don't have answers behind their deaths, I think that's a problem as well. And so it's so funny that you are, it's interesting I would say that people do not compare a person being mistreated in a pain crisis to um, death, but to me, I see them as very clearly linked. I once went to a lecture Um, from an expert in implicit bias. And he said that there's three professions that need to be the most careful about their implicit biases. And of course, he mentioned law enforcement, he mentioned the education system, teachers, and then he mentioned medicine. And he said it's because all three of those people, their implicit biases can actually impact a person's life for the better or for worse. And that worse could equate to death. Now that was so powerful and to me I was like this is exactly what is the issue with sickle cell. We need to figure out how to help doctors become more compassionate about a disease. Why would a disease ever be compared to a drug seeker? Like why would that even happen? I read an article and I could t- give you all these resources later if you like, but there was an article I read as a resident trying to answer that same question. Why did they mistreat this lady when I was a medical student, I just don't understand. And this article talked about how we confuse drug seeking with care seeking. Individuals with sickle cell are actually care seeking. They are not drug seeking. Um, You can wrap it up in a tattered bow if you want, but the truth is they're a person with a disease whose life was interrupted and they are seeking care and they're counting on the healthcare system to help them. Sadly, many of them know that they'll either have delayed care or they may not get the care they need at all. Um, but yet they still go because they have no other hope. And let me emphasize the points we said earlier. There's not that many drugs to help a person with sickle cell. So even keeping them healthy is, like, difficult. There's, and so that means there is less research funding to investigate drugs to help sickle cell. All of those are part of that systemic problem, the systemic injustices associated with the disease. And so when people ask, okay, so how do we fix this problem? Is Can you just inject compassion into people? I think we can help them understand what it's like to actually be a person with sickle cell disease. This podcast is part of that process, helping people realize that there's a person behind this disease. And you shouldn't just treat people as one type of uh, you know, you should never treat people as if they're all the same. Um, recognize why that drug seeker label became a thing and teach our young doctors yeah. about it, teach them and help them not make the mistakes of our prior, um, me- the, the medical profession previously. And so that's part of the advocacy part that I do and others do to try to help this problem. Some of us are the scientists working on curing with gene therapy, but some of us are calling, and I believe it's my calling, are to be advocates to fix the other side of the sickle cell problem, this um, public health component to it. And so again i i thank you so much for asking this question i'm trying to even making sure i answered all the elements you wanted me to but yes that has happened to me if anybody was wondering oh a doctor would never be treated that way i have been treated mistreated in the emergency department before and it's a same similar story um you'll hear people with sickle cell talk about how they put on makeup and they did their hair before going to the emergency department because they didn't want to be treated differently you'll hear people talk about how they've changed their clothes and just try to do everything possible to hope that they would get better treatment and better care. So, um, so no, thank you for this interview and the compassion you've shown with your questions and the um, openness that you and your team are to learning more about this disease, even the stuff that's ugly about it. Um, because I think that actually makes me the most hopeful because people are listening and I know that things can change.
0: Will you make, Um, make me two promises, please, before we say goodbye, will you come back as more advances come down the pike? You're such a passionate caregiver and educator here. Uh, I would love to have another conversation with you as, as events warrant.
1: Thank you so much. I would be happy to, very much an honor for me.
0: Second, when you're ready to start a hemoglobin podcast, will you call me first to be your producer?
1: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So you probably heard we want our name change. We're calling ourselves classic hematologist and hemoglobin front and center. Oh, my gosh. You would be the first person I call.
0: Excellent.
1: <laughs> we just started a fan club together or something.
0: <laughs> Tita Lope Fashipa is co-director of the Sickle Cell and Thalassemia Program at Texas Children's Cancer and Hematology Center. She's also assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine. Thanks so much. Thank you. My thanks, too, to Dr. Bria Davis and her cousin Heather Avant, to Sejama Branch, who spoke with producer Scott Acorn, and to Andre Marcel Harris, who talked with his baby sister Alexis about sickle cell. You can hear all of those conversations in their entirety on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Health System and its family of organizations. It's produced by Scott Acourt and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical library staff, Carrie Grinstead, Basha Dolovska elliott Sarah Vescuso, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. Join us in two weeks for Nurses Unmasked, Reflections from the Front Lines, Stories from the Pandemic. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks so much for listening today. Be well.